Welcome to Ryan Rants and Raves, a podcast series by the Quebec government office in New York. Bienvenue à Ryan Rants and Raves, une série de podcasts par le gouvernement du Québec à New York. Today I'm excited to be with someone who has over 20 years of experience. Um, she is a partner at Dorsey and Whitney. I am with Sarah Robertson today, and she's also Canadian, so that's even better. Hi, Sarah. Nice to be with you today. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I guess just to get started, can you just tell us a bit about yourself and then we'll get into the fun conversation about the metaverse, NFTs, etc. Absolutely. I'm a transplanted Canadian lawyer. I started my professional life uh, in Toronto, uh, practicing entertainment law, actually. I came down to New York to get some branding experience. Uh, my initial plan was to be here for two years. And I'm now coming up on my 22nd year. I work at a law firm called Dorsey and Whitney, which is headquartered in Minneapolis, um, servicing a lot of the big companies in the Midwest and on the coast and all around the world, including China and the UK. And um, that Midwestern culture has felt very Canadian-like, and I've been uh, comfortable and at home there for a long time. Well, it's crazy that two years becomes, you know, 20. You never you realize how fast time flies. But I'm glad you're here and stay in New York. <laughs> yes, I think a lot of Canadians in New York might give the same answer as well, where they shake their heads a bit and wonder how they ended up here for so long. Now, I do want to change gears and chat about you went to a conference concerning NFTs in the metaverse. I forget the name, but uh, can you chat a bit about of maybe some things that you saw or your opinion about what's going on there right now, because it's a hot topic. Yes, absolutely. And so um, my background is really working with brands and digital media companies. And so um, whether we like it or not, uh, the metaverse and NFTs are coming into the uh, conversation, including on the marketing side and also uh, cutting edge companies, but also mainstream companies. With that in mind, we ventured down to the NFT NYC conference. As a New Yorker, I thought it was great, great that New York was hosting the conference and being viewed as you know, an NFT epicenter. The conference was quite amazing. There were about uh, 15,000 people in attendance is my understanding, and the program was lengthy. I can't give you the number of the panels. All I know is I tried to print out the program and our my printer ran out of ink. And after about 100 pages, I just gave up. But there were um, <laughs> multiple tracks for programs, uh, some short, some long. But um, uh, but it was uh, it was inspiring and, and energizing, uh, despite the, the the cryptocurrency valuations that are creating some uh, some strain right now. Um, I focused on some of the bigger firm legal panels and also what some of the bigger companies were doing in the space um, because I thought they might be telling, you know, about where the mainstream is headed. Uh, so that's a bit of background about the conference. And and where do you think where do you think some trends are right now? Where do you think it is headed from seeing the conference and from your own opinion and experience? Well, there were a lot of things I got out of it. One was, you know, the word NFT, I think, is perplexing to most people about what it means. And, you know, at its um, at its core, it's really a 
just a digital certificate of authenticity. And so in that sense, an NFT has a myriad of applications in terms of authenticating things from, you know, concert tickets to, you know, uh, VIN numbers for cars. But that one trend was was because of the innumerable applications of NFTs that, that there be a shift away from using that word altogether because it can mean something so different. So I went to a panel that was given by one of the large uh, luxury fashion brands and um, NFTs in that sense were really discussed around digital collectibles and also digital art. And uh, so those are some ways to refer to NFTs. I think there may be a shift away from that term NFT altogether towards their their various applications, which are which are really endless. I think that's a that's a, that's a good idea because even NFT just goes over my head. I mean, <laughs> the metaverse goes over my head. So when you add more acronyms, I think it, like you mentioned, if they were are able to word or phrase something based on their final application, like you mentioned, a collectible, it makes so much more sense. Um, and, you know, I know you also have experience, you know, in working w- with artists, you know, within within the metaverse and the NFTs. Um, how has how has that actually helped artists, you know, this new this new space where they could put their art? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's it's really uh, obviously the art um, applications. And I know uh, um sitting close by to Christie's the um uh which so the arts sort of got the most visibility part of the nft culture is really a cultural shift towards you know what they call uh decentralization and and it's a equalization of power and it's very interesting for artists because it should result in a shifting of power to artists and by that i mean um, easier access to the art market or a new form of art market, um, access to resale royalty rights, which is a very important income stream. And that, that refers to not just earning money when your work first gets sold, but also on subsequent sales. And that has not been a North American concept, at least for physical art. Um, what I'm also noticing is uh, I do work for some uh, agencies, a design agency, uh, some of the bigger consumer product brands, and the work for hire concept, which is really a, I would say, a commoditization of art and a creation of art in return for payment, but a um, with a handing over of rights. What I'm seeing is that uh, because of these opportunities for other digital income streams that artists are more interested in retaining rights. And so there's been a little bit of shift in the negotiations with some of these bigger um, commercial companies uh, with the artists they hire to design or create marketing materials. Um, so you may find artists flexing their muscles more to try to hang on to Uh, more of what they're creating, at least to be able to repurpose them where it's feasible in other um, digital markets. That's great. It also gives them them more negotiation power. And it's true what you mentioned about it being decentralized, but how you could actually follow the art when it's 
sold and resold digitally because you have that unique code where I, th I think you can't do that necessarily pre this in a traditional sense. I think. Yes, that's right. It's a, you know, there's the, you know, the perk of the NFTs is sort of the, the di digital tracking uh, that results through the method by which they're created and it can be very beneficial for repayment rights. And they would realize right away, as opposed to if someone, let's say someone sold something and wasn't digital, they might find out later on and then they might say, oh, you know, you owe me the royalty for selling that or you didn't have right, a right to sell that. So I think that's, that is a great thing for the artist to have that at their disposal. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And, and um, without getting to, you know, technological, you know, some of the terms that get embedded to NFTs make trigger these rights automatically which can be helpful in terms of um in an ideal world reducing administrative burden on uh on uh, creators because the um everything should be triggered automatically and uh, yeah. along the way which is helpful that's great and and now to talk about one of your other areas of specialty is licensing because you know a lot of my listeners are involved in licensing or they're all exploring to be licensees or licensors. Um, can you tell us a bit about your experience of licensing and then maybe some, you know, mistakes or pitfalls that arrive? Yes, absolutely. So we handle some licensing programs for clients, mainly in the um, uh, apparel space, uh, but also cosmetics and home furnishings, so consumer goods. and we also deal with um, sort of, you know, licensing disputes. So when things go wrong and it's made us um, certainly more sharp in our drafting when we see a lot of things that go awry and, and the reasons why they can go awry. So, so we're, uh, you know, focused on, on the legal contracts associated with licensing and, and also developing brand programs for clients including internationally, just so they can maximize uh, licensing opportunities. And then some problems that sometimes you encounter, we, we don't have to name any names, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, 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 um, we give a talk every year and, and the, the, our, our uh, case studies change, but they're usually kind of the same, uh, the same issues that arise. Um, one, one area where problems come is where is when two Two, you know, licensing partners are keen to get a deal together and to get it together quickly, um, either because they're impatient or because there's a business opportunity that needs to be acted on quickly, that there can be um, imprecision in language, certain parts of a contract rushed, um, lack of specificity. These are the types of things that can lead to um <clears throat> to problems later um i guess a couple of examples are you know just going back to what we talked about you know um not taking into consideration uh digital channels whether they be marketing mm. uh or digital licensing opportunities and so if you have multiple licensees there can be uh clashes online whether they're through urls or social media account names and those things usually takes some thought and planning. The other aspect, you know, lack of specification about licensing categories. You know, we have an infamous case about 
uh, mitts and, you know, uh, became uh, uh, oven mitts came into the pl- into the picture. Oh. So <laughs> obviously um, oven mitts as a kitchen category are much different than, um, you know, mitts that you'd wear to throw a snowball. And yeah. so uh, these are the, a few examples of things that come up. Oh, and, and that's why you would have to, like you mentioned, that's when mistakes happens when they, they precipitate the contract and don't look at it thoroughly. Because mm-hmm. so they someone could put a, say, oh, you know, gloves, that could be a mitt. And then that creates a problem with someone else who might have had the home or cookware license. And then you're in conflict with another license, with two licensees at the same time. That's exactly right. You've got it. Uh, just something else I'll mention that may not answer your question directly, but, you know, in this current climate, I'm seeing consumers sort of demand more, if you will, if you will, from brands in terms of um, social stances or environmental practices, uh, good social practices. And so uh, I do think as a licensee and even as a licensor that there's more uh, responsibility in terms of stewardship of brands. And that's just something I wanted to note that really came to the forefront, I think, during COVID and the last couple of years. Oh, no, I would agree with you because you have to be more, if you're a brand that says sustainability is very important to you, and then you have a licensee, you just get the license, but their sustainability practices are not up to par with what you say, then that, you know, you you put yourself in a construct that's that's clashing. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. I think it 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 gives reason for licensors and licensees to look a little bit more closely at each other to make sure um, that they're up to the challenge and that there'll be brand integrity maintained as the best you can in this um, quite polarized climate. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a great point. Thank you for mentioning that. And since you know we have been talking about some recent changes currently, how do you think COVID has affected? I imagine COVID made a big splash, unfortunately, within the licensing industry. But um, what have you seen as what happened? What results have you seen from COVID within the industry of licensing? Yeah, it's such it's been such an interesting time. I think I think you know one positive is 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 the unexpected. Um, development that people kept buying things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we were all uh, uh, still getting packages to our doors. You know, we had clients in the skincare space, loungewear space, certain categories that really um, did quite well during COVID. So that um, there was maybe some unexpected um, uh, brand and uh, uh, sales successes. The I guess I'll mention two things. I think some of the supply chain hurdles created difficulties uh, and retail hurdles too, in terms of a shift away from bricks and mortar, at least temporarily, yeah. created um, uh, forced changes in business plans. You know, where a licensee planned to go, they had to pivot, and although it could have led to disputes, what we were seeing is licensors being flexible to take into account the change environment, Uh, presumably because they wanted to see their licensees still succeed. It was in the interest of both parties. But the the sales chain stresses, which continue um, uh, cost of goods, 
which has increased, I think has yeah. created pressures on margins. Um, so that's one aspect. I think the other is just the um, exponential increase in terms of digital presence and digital interaction, and um, which has uh, required a change of um, uh, marketing focus, I think, for, uh, for licensees. That, that's a, that is a good point. It's it's a lot different to ensuring the brand digitally as it is and store, and, and I can understand why the licensee would want to explore digitally. If, for instance, one of their partners might have canceled the orders in store, so then they have to find another way to maybe meet the their minimums, you know, in terms of guarantees for the licensor. Yes, there definitely was some flexibility uh, that had to come into play to uh, to let. Uh, relationships continue and, and sort of uh, uh, be resilient during this uh, uh, sort of still uncertain time, I would say. We, so we, other than the categories of like beauty and maybe some home, have you seen any other winners with from COVID within the licensing world? Um, I think all things home uh, did well. Um, uh, you know, everyone was staring at their four walls and um, you know, <laughs> I found some receipts the other day from some things I bought to, um, you know, um, flip up my space. So I think um, the shift towards the home, home decorating, home comforts, renovation, interior design, those were um, uh, pretty significant. Um, a lot of service categories that have been doing very well, uh, tradespeople, uh, other things. Um, as someone mentioned to me, uh, at a branding conference, you know, that there's been this shift from the public world to the private world in, you know, um, uh, the private entertaining and home, uh, home environments are, are meaningful. So I would say um, uh, it extends to uh, cooking, so, all things cooking and, and entertaining. Exactly. Um, now to, to change the conversation Real quickly, um, I do want to speak about Good Old Quebec, um, since you know, as you know, they are my employer. Um, <laughs> do you have anything to say about um, La Belle Province? Um, I, I, I imagine you've been to Montreal I, or Quebec. Yes, okay. absolutely, <laughs> several times. I, um, you know, I have a theory, although I think it's changing, that Canadians in general have difficulty embracing celebrity and that you know often um those who stand out tend to unfortunately shift south of the border but what i've admired about quebec uh consistently is the uh creativity the innovation the willingness to um uh, make themselves known internationally the international mindset uh which is why i think uh quebec uh, Quebec are so visible in New York because of their interest and desire to um, expand their reach and, and enter, uh, you know, growth mindset. So I'm I'm consistently inspired um, by the creativity and drive out of uh, Quebec. Uh, so I'm uh, always glad to partner uh, with your group, Ryan, because of the inspiring things that you're doing. Oh, well, merci. I'm happy that I'm happy we can inspire you. It's a, it's a <laughs> It's a great win-win. We're very thankful for you to you as well. So merci encore for that. Um, and now, you know, I always like to close, you know, with my guests, you know, because you have a lot of experience. Um, 
So what advice do you have to those within, since a lot of your clients are in the apparel space, um, what advice do you have to those in the industry? You know, I think brand integrity is a really important focus right now, of including in the apparel. And that that um, that could be a whole separate talk that we have. Yeah. But um, I think um, I'll just go a bit to the side. But I think this New York Fashion Act that has been sitting yes. before a committee, which is a uh, although it will have. Uh, more limited application, it won't impact all companies. I think what it is, and it may not pass uh, through, but the um, the the focus on social environmental transparency, I think is is something all brands need to, to be mindful of now, whether they're uh, regulated or not, because whether it's a legislative requirement, it seems to be a uh, consumer expectation. And I think that will only increase as time goes on. And I, you, I'm happy you mentioned that because you know, um, I know that your firm will often um, have roundtables and webinars about you know new things that are happening about you know brand integrity about um, this new act that's passed among other subjects. Um, so where can listeners find information about your firm or even get in contact with you if they have any um, legal questions? Yeah, thank you for asking. So uh, our firm is at uh, Dorsey.com. We have a uh, creative industries group, which I co-lead, which leads lots of programs on topics that will be of interest to apparel uh, companies in particular. Uh, and we have a blog, uh, the TMCA.com, which um, I encourage um, your listeners to go read about. We we do lighthearted, short, easy to read articles about all sorts of topics that will be of interest. Um, and um, maybe we can uh, uh, display the URL or something at the end of yes, this. Yes, of course. Yes, I'll put it I'll put it in the meeting, in yeah. the the notes within the podcast. So on Spotify, yes. everyone can see it. <laughs> but I'm, I'm always willing to donate time uh, to anyone in your group or listeners, Ryan, if anybody wants to reach out to me personally, I'm happy to spend some time sharing some knowledge. Great. Thank, thank you, sir. Well, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. It was a, it was a great nuggets of information there. And then I look forward to having our next one on another topic, um, maybe around one of your uh, webinars that's coming up soon. So thank you again. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Merci d'avoir écouté Ryan's Rants and Raves. Suivez-nous sur Instagram at Ryan's Rants and Raves. Thank you for listening to Ryan's Rants and Raves. Follow us on Instagram at Ryan's Rants and Raves. A très bientôt.